Les. The uh, Stephen Greenblatt, the uh, historian and prolific writer, um, explains where the term bookworm came from. He said that during the uh, early Middle Ages, the way that books were produced and uh, reproduced, because this is before Gutenberg and the printing press, is that books were made by human hands. In other words, meticulous copies required um, rooms full of, at that time, mostly monks and priests who devoted their lives to copying books into other books. And so the folios, the creation of books, was an ongoing endeavor and that very often monasteries and churches in the Christian world, certainly to speak of, were the sole repositories of information and education. So Greenblatt goes on to say that the term bookworm comes from a very real source because back then um, they didn't have paper to print on. The way that they made copies was just like in our Torah itself, the copies were made on pieces of parchment. And there were worms that actually lived inside the books. I'm looking at Stan. They lived inside the books and they would eat the parchment. And so there were some people who were in charge of going through the library and opening up the books and trying to shake out the worms so that the bookworms would not consume the books and ergo destroy them. I speak of this not only because it's an interesting little tidbit of information, a great icebreaker if you're ever in a, a social situation that doesn't require social distancing, which hopefully will be soon, but also because of some very important news, heartbreaking news that came this week. The heartbreaking news is the story of a person who was not a bookworm in the sense that they consumed or destroyed books, but a person who created books. And uh, just yesterday, we, the Jewish world, was, was met with the heartbreaking news of the death of one of the most important and prolific scholars of our generation, that being Rabbi Adin Steinsatz. I have to pause for a moment. Before I talk about him, I want to pause for a moment because there's a gap, a space that needs to be spoken about first. Often when we flip through the newspaper, or maybe not physically, but we tab through uh, pages on our web browsers of different news, when we hear the deaths of religious leaders, particularly in the Jewish world, there's a great gap between the people who intimately know them and are affected by their loss and people who simply read the news and pass by it. I thought of this years ago with the death of Rabbi Eliezer Shach, who was one of the foremost Haredi rabbis of the Panovich Yeshiva, of which he led for many, many years. And when he passed away in Bnei Brak in Israel, when he passed away, there was a, a funeral, a funerary procession of tens of thousands of people. In fact, I think it was in excess of 100,000. And yet, if you would have pulled the majority of the Jewish world outside of Israel, they didn't even know him. Images of the funeral procession, of the funeral itself, was in fact posted on most major news sites throughout the world. The death of leading Israeli rabbi. 
And yet if you would have asked most Jews if they knew who Eliezer Shach was, wouldn't have even registered a blip on our screen. And there's a tragedy in that. A tragedy in that we live in silos and that a rabbi who serves only in that community there is worthy of attention and getting to know. And so I want to dedicate the few moments I have this morning to talking about a person who I had the very good fortune of meeting years ago, but who I became even more acquainted with, not by meeting him in person, but actually by reading his books. Rabbi Adin Steinzaltz. And after Shabbat, do yourself a favor. Google him. You'll be very impressed. He died at the age of 83 after a acute bout of um, pneumonia, I believe. And... Um, his life story is a fascinating story. His parents were emigrants to Israel. He was born actually in Israel itself, so he's at Sabra. And he lived in the Jerusalem neighborhood of Katamon. This is pre-mandate uh, Palestine. And uh, he didn't grow up in a religious home. Steinzel says that his father was a secular, liberal communist, such a communist in fact that during the Spanish Civil War he went over in Spain to fight um, but his father also was a man of intense intellectual curiosity and he got hold of a tutor when Adin was young, I think he was seven or eight years old uh, a tutor for his son to teach him Aramaic which, as many of you in fact know, is the language of the Talmud itself. The Talmud is not written in Hebrew. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, Hebrew was not the lingua franca. It was not the language of the Jewish people for almost a thousand years from the destruction of the first temple to the destruction of the second temple. For those of you who may have seen Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion, you'll, re you'll note that in the opening scenes that the character... Jesus does not speak Hebrew. He speaks Aramaic, which in fact was the language that all the Jews spoke in that part of the world at that time. It was, to help explain, Aramaic was kind of like the Yiddish of the Second Temple Jewish world. And certainly for the rabbis of that time, they freely spoke Aramaic. And Hebrew, even at that point, had been relocated to a language of liturgy, of prayer. But the language of the street, well, that was Aramaic. So they got, uh, Rabbi Steinzalz's parents got him a tutor. He started learning Aramaic, and it opened up a world for him that would change his life and the life of the Jewish world as a whole. At the age of, uh, he went on to become a devotee of Chabad, he uh, went on to also to get university's degrees in mathematics and I believe in chemistry. Um, and at the age of 23, he became the youngest school principal in the history of the state of Israel. He would then later on throughout his life to go on to write over 60 books. But more important than the books that he wrote are the books that he worked with and the people that he worked with. Famously, and this is where I came to know him, once a week on Thursday nights, Rabbi Steinzaltz would hold uh, open lectures in Jerusalem. And the people who attended were often amongst the most political and intellectual luminaries in the state of Israel. Shimon Perez, Teddy Kalik, were frequent guests of his Thursday night lectures. And they were famous because they would start, they would start religiously at 9 o'clock at night. And it was not uncommon for it to end at 2 in the morning. 
And so it was as much an intellectual environment as it was a gathering space for people in search of great ideas. But Steinsaltz's lasting mark on the Jewish world was a project that he began undertaking in 1965, and it would take him more than 45 years to complete, and that was to offer a clear, concise Hebrew translation, modern Hebrew translation, of each of the 2,771 pages of the Babylonian Talmud, complete with updated scientific, zoological, geographic, and other, other linguistic notes to help bring the text to life. He wrote later on saying that when he started doing this, he had no idea <laughs> how much of a job it would be. But rightly so, he said, it was good that I started when I was young. He was 27 years old when he began the project. He said, it was good that I started when I was young because I didn't know much. And great things usually are only accomplished by people who don't know just how great the task is. Steinsaltz's uh, Steinsaltz undertaking of the translation of the Talmud stands at a remarkable moment in Jewish history because what he was looking to do was to take a text that had been couched in language that was long dead, that required intimate, intense, kind of uh, collegial, scholastic, a yeshiva environment to unlock the text and he opened it up to a world that you didn't need to sit in a classroom or go to a yeshiva. You could sit down, open his text up, and you, in fact, would have alongside you the, one of the greatest study partners you can imagine in your life, Rabbi Einstein Zaltz himself. Step by step, taking you through the discussions that would form the strength and backbone of the Talmud and with uh, illustrations, diagrams and other explanations brought the text to life. Now, this is not the end of the story. Rabbi Steinsaltz became embroiled in great controversy and that much of the ultra-Orthodox world would come to ban the Talmudic translations that he had penned. In addition to the other 60 books that he had written as well, they accused him of blasphemy, of taking sacred texts that were formed in a certain way and turning them upside down. Some of them, Aaron Feldman, accused him of cheapening and dumbing down the texts for people. It is a controversy that is still very much alive today. I'll tell you a story. I got a phone call about four months ago from a congregant. Their parent, unfortunately, had passed away, and they were busy emptying out the contents of the apartment, and they came across because it was a Jewish home, they came across lots of books. His father had a collection of some of the volumes of the Steinsaltz translation of the Talmud, and he asked me if we wanted it. To be fair and true, our library is filled, <laughs> and uh, we can't accept any more books, and additionally, most of the Steinsaltz, uh, in fact, all of the translations now are available from their publishing, publishing site on PDF form, so I said, thank you, but no thank you. But I recommended that perhaps he call one of the Orthodox synagogues in the city because for sure, they, I assume that they might be interested in taking it. Called me back a day later and said that they would have loved to have had the translation, except it had been the Steinsaltz translation. 
and they wouldn't accept it. Interestingly enough, that the translation that Steinsaltz had done decades later would be undertaken by ultra-Orthodox publishing houses, and those were acceptable. But in truth, I don't want to wallow too much in the controversy surrounding him because they're arcane and they're on the fringes of really what defines his life. So what I actually want to talk about is not precisely what he did, but in fact what he was trying to do. In this week's Torah portion, we read in Parsha Dekev these words, and it is one of the classic openings of biblical text. It says as follows, When it comes to pass that if you listen to these laws, and if you observe them, and if you do them, and as a result of you steadfastly keeping and observing the law, that God will look after you. God will preserve the covenant. God will ensure that good occurs to you, that you will be healthy and you will have sustenance, and your family would be taken care of. And it goes on to tell us that we will be safe and sure and secured in the land. Steinsaltz rightly points out that in Israel, as it is throughout most of the Jewish world, most of the familiarity that Jews have with Jewish texts are biblical texts. In fact... Most Jews know one of the most popular and important biblical texts, that being the Shema. But Steinsaltz rightly points out that of all the texts that Jews need to learn, perhaps the biblical texts are not the right ones. Because the biblical text speaks about dreams, about prophecies, about not things that actually happen, but things that we dream of happening. That if we're good people, that God will take care of us that if we're kind and generous, that life will be kind and generous to us, that if we're observant in God's law, that we will have safety and surety and health and happiness. And yet we know that is not true, that that is a dream and a hope, but the reality of the world is far and very distant from that. No, Steinzelt says. The text that Jews should be studying And knowing more intimately is the text of the Talmud, which is a dialectical text. It is a text that is ambivalent and riddled with argument and compromise and hearing other opinions. It is a text that works to try to understand how you make the world and actually live in it. Not the world that we dream it would be, but the world that it actually is. I never forget, they once asked Harry Neal, who was a coach of the Vancouver Canucks years ago, and they were mired in like a 40-game losing streak. They asked him if he would have had this player or that player, how would he coach the team? And Harry Neal rightly said, as a coach, I don't get to coach the team I wish I had. I have to coach the team that I actually have, which is a very keen insight into understanding that we have to live in the world, not, that we, not the world that we wish it was, but the world that it actually is. The Talmud is riddled with expressions like kalsakadaitach and the fianiadaiti. All the rabbis always begin their opinions by saying, it appears to me, or I would think, hava amina, I would hope to say this. No one in the Talmud ever stands up and says, this is the truth. They simply say, this is my opinion. 
And Steinsaltz said, imagine how much better the world would be with fewer prophets and more Talmudic scholars. In Jewish tradition, we see Steinsaltz as a chain and a link, a link of the intimate relationship that Jews have with our words. The Hebrew word for a letter is teva, and the ark that saved Noah and humanity is called a teva. When a Jewish boy is eight days old, we perform a ceremony called a brit milah. What does the word milah mean? It means word. The moment of entry into Jewish life is the moment that we begin to understand that our relationship with God and with, with each other and with our faith is deeply tied to the understanding of the impact of words because buildings are built and they crumble. But words, as we know, survive forever in the hearts of people. May his memory be a blessing, as I know it will be. And after Shabbat, almost all of his books have been translated into English. Buy one. And if you buy one, you'll buy many more. Shabbat Shalom.